What's up, everybody? I'm Corey Siegfried, and this is The Turn. Welcome to a different side of golf. This episode's guest, Mark Flaherty, is a stock market and trading guru who currently serves on the boards of Goldman Sachs and the PGA Tour. Mark grew up in Massachusetts and started caddying at Mount Pleasant Country Club nearby when he was nine years old. Caddying became building blocks for opportunities in Mark's life as he learned to appreciate meritocracy and hard work from a young age. Mark attended Providence College where he was on the JV basketball team. After Providence, he learned about options trading at a manufacturing company that made products out of gold and silver. At one point, their inventory was 2 million ounces of gold, and he was the largest market maker of gold options in North America. Mark then went to Aetna to serve as the director of equity trading, and then went to Standish Aaron Wood to serve in the same position as a partner. Eventually, he went on to Wellington Management and became vice chairman of Global Investment Services, and has served on the board of directors of Goldman Sachs since 2014 on the Audit, Risk, and Governance Committees. In 2020, Mark was named to the board of directors for the PGA Tour. You'll learn about Mark's concept of getting out of the way, why the number 15 is Mark's anchor, how always being accessible was the key to his successful growth, and why he believes the PGA Tour's future is more exciting than ever. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Great, 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 great. In South Florida, so it's a pretty good morning here. You know, to give everyone some background on yourself, and we'll go deeper into this, but uh, like we mentioned, you grew up in Massachusetts. Uh, I believe the way you got introduced to golf was through your dad or through caddying. To my understanding, he would drop you off at the course, you caddy with your brothers, and you have fun. You went to Providence College in uh, Rhode Island, uh, worked in a few different roles before landing at Willington Management, where you were for, I believe, 12, 13 years in some various roles, ultimately vice chairman, and then got on the PGA Tour Policy Board more recently. Was uh, You've been on the Goldman Sachs Board for about six years now, so a, a lot to cover really in your breadth of experience. Uh, why don't we just start from the beginning and you know, kind of explain who Mark Flaherty is, your upbringing, and introduction to golf tied into that uh, the caddying background. Well, my story's not unlike a lot of other stories out there when it comes to golf. So I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I was the youngest of four. And four kids in five years, two girls, two boys. And my dad was a, uh, for all intents and purposes, a truck driver. He and his brother-in-law had a little trucking company, you know, six, seven trucks, and they ran freight between Providence and Hartford. But his passion in his off time was golf. I mean, he grew up caddying in Newport, Rhode Island, at a course called Wanham Autonomy, right uh, in between Newport and Portsmouth. His fondest memories would be caddying for people from Bellevue Ave and the mansions that come over to Wanham Autonomy when they were playing Newport Country Club. And they'd all jump in the Narragansett Bay when they were six to eight years old. And, you know, someone would give them a ride back to what they call the Fifth Ward in Newport, where the Irish lived. And so he had such great memories of that. It obviously taught him a lot of things that early on in my my life, my brother Bobby's life, uh, we were about well, probably nine or 10 years old. And he drove us out to Mount Pleasant Country Club in West Boylston, Mass., which is about 12 miles outside of Worcester, as they had a, a good caddy program. Introduced the caddy master, plunk us on the wall, and uh, he said, I'll drive you here. You guys got to get home. And it's sort of the journey of golf started there. He says, you're going to learn a lot from people. You know, it's classic, you know, keep up, shut up thing. And we'd go every day. It was great. I mean, the lessons in the caddy yard from a 10-year-old hanging out with a 14-year-old seemed like you're hanging out with a 50-year-old with the language and the stories 
we fell in love with it. And my dad also knew that caddy at Mount Pleasant, they let the caddies play every night. And that was a rare benefit at a club that they let you do that. So I think he had both of those things in mind where he knew trying to teach us the game was probably not good. He wanted us to be exposed to the game, but he also wanted us to work. He, my, my folks believe that um, all four kids had to contribute to the house equally weighted every day. I remember in my mom's eulogy, I called her sort of a labor camp director, the way she ran the place. But we'd wake up every day and there'd be four lists on the refrigerator of to-do lists for each of us. And we felt we all had a part in uh, contributing to the household. And that became the DNA for us. So the caddy side is then we'd come home and my father would ask for half of the money. We never thought he was taking the money from us for other reasons other than the lesson was, and you thought about this later, that you were contributing to the house and that's what you had to do. Now we had a a great middle-class livelihood. It wasn't as if this was Angela's ashes and we were, you know, we're coming out of an orphanage and needed the money, but it's, we gave the money. We did that every day. And that continued really for our working careers, caddying up to age 16, we could get a, uh, to get a real job where I, my brother and I then went to McDonald's and, and started doing that. And we handed our money to him. So the lessons of golf started in Mount Pleasant Country Club. We'd get to play, and then on the weekends um, or at night, we'd go to the driving range with my father, and he'd hit 90% of the balls in the bucket, and we'd get to hit 10. And we didn't mind. It was a great exposure without him teaching us the game. And looking back, we had a great experience with the members because half of them lived in and around the neighborhood in Worcester where we lived. And we'd be out thumbing to go home at night, half of those folks might drive by me and my brother standing in the road who we caddy for that day. And they would drive right by us knowing where we lived. And the other half may pick us up. So again, the life lesson is how could I just spend four hours with this person had a great, you know, conversation for a 12 year old now. And they'd stand and see a 12 year old with their thumbs out having to get 12 miles home and they'd drive by you. It began to resonate like I would never do that to someone. And I would never do that to a kid, whether that kid was in my group or not. So it's these impressions that start to make these building blocks through life of we need to get home somehow. And we watch how other people behave, not during the day, but even after the round. My parents had a plan, I think. They never said it was a plan, but whatever way they thought about teaching us something, it started at Mount Pleasant Country Club for me. And it, it's the journey there started to be building blocks for not just golf, but golf that led to other opportunities at work and school and so on. It, it, was a, it was a wonderful launch. There's a lot to unpack with the other opportunities that have come out of golf, those life lessons in general. It's very curious to hear that giving away, not giving away, but handing over half the money you earn because now being on risk, audit and governance is kind of your specialty on the board you serve. Wonder how that ties in as like a foundation from your youth. But let's go to that uh, when you were caddying, right? So I've heard many stories from people similar, right? Of typical background, thrown in the caddy yard as a kid, having to learn to be scrappy. You sit, you learn patience, you gather wisdom from other people, and then you get exposure to some cool members where opportunities born out of. Can you talk about any potential opportunities that have come out of others, just even life lessons as a kid? being in the caddy yards or some interesting members, was there anyone specifically impactful that you remember from Mount Pleasant that taught you something you carry on to today? One of the things my father did, he didn't use the word meritocracy back then. I'm not quite sure that was a word that was used, but the way he described it is whoever gets there first gets out. But then he was quick to say, that's not always true. There's a cue 
and a queue can be altered by the caddy master and, and or by a member. So if you outwork someone or outperform expectations for David Berwick, who ran a big furniture company in Worcester, or Mrs. Regent, who was probably the best golfer, her experience with you may lead her to ask for you. So you may get there early, but the older guys may get out. But if Mrs. Regent comes down and says to Marty, the caddy master, you know, I want Mark on my bag, then the concept of meritocracy begins to enter in that if you do out-hustle, if you don't lose a ball, if you do those little things on the edges and exceed their expectations, it's not just the money thing where the bag loop would have been $5 to give you six. It's the, you got out early because you got asked to go out. And so you weren't sitting there from eight to 11. If you get out at eight, then you could get out at one again. So it began the cycle of you could do two loops and you could make twice as much money. And there was the meritocracy tied to reward system because you didn't ask for it, but you did the right things. You exceeded your client's expectations. My parents told us that, that you're going to have to wait most days. But if you do these things and do them the right way, good things will begin to happen. And that led to it. And again, I mentioned David Burke. He ran a big company in Worcester. He was an older guy. You know, he played every day treated people incredibly well. He could have sold his company, but he often talked about in the round how he didn't hand his company off to his kids because they hadn't earned it and hadn't deserved it. They hadn't done the things. He had put them in position to succeed, but there was a sense of entitlement. And he always expressed that. That really dawned on me of just because you're in a family of wealth and your father owns a company, it may not come to you. So don't expect anything. And it was your father and mother's hard sweat, and they have every right to do whatever they want with what they did with their company or their, you know, their good fortune. And uh, you're on your own. You should make your own way. That was a valuable lesson for me because I heard him say it to his partners often, over and over again, and it just just resonated with me that uh, you got to do it on your own, and you got to do it by bringing others along and collaborating and listening. And it's it's really like you said, oh, the power of listening, like. Caddies may be engaged in the conversation, but uh, the collective wisdom that you can pick up from four people walking around for four hours, and most of it could be silly. It could be you pick up a couple of good jokes, but at the end of the day, most folks have their own story and their own past on how they got there. And if you can take away a piece of each of those four people's lives in those three and a half to four hours, that's free. I mean, that is a free offsite, a free conference you get to attend. Those become very valuable. That's exactly what others have said of the exposure you get four hours, you know, no holds barred conversation of any topic you want. I mean, like you said, most of the time it can be fun uh, not be a serious conversation, but there's so much to be had in that four hour uh, learning experience with anybody. You can even learn if someone has a bad temper and who they are. So it's cool to hear that from a young age, you were able to grab onto that and notice that potential of, hey, I don't get the, no one gets this type of access. And here I am providing a service, making an impact, giving this person a good experience, paying me dividends because I'm learning from it too. I don't think many people realize that at a young age, especially if they're you know slugging around a bag and just trying to find someone's golf ball. The other thing is it taught me the four people don't really know the caddies well. They think they do, but their willingness to talk about anything in front of two younger people who are not in the circle of the four people playing and the risk they take of the information they're sharing, and more often than not, how they disparage other people. So the, the lesson I took away is they really shouldn't be saying that about that other person who they played with two days ago, who when I walk with them appeared to be their friend, 
And two days later, they're in another group and they're disparaging them at some level or making fun of them or, or saying things that they shouldn't. And I, you know, I just remember saying, I don't want to ever be that person. I mean, I, I thought those two ladies or two guys were friends and two days later, they're kind of poking fun at them and saying things they shouldn't say. And it's not the way I wanted to be because it made me think, is the caddy I'm with today going to be saying stuff about me? And I'm not, you're not looking to be higher than mighty, but it's an awareness of be careful what you say and who's around and word spreads, you know, pre-internet, they people used to talk to one another versus type it. And it is a compounding either positive effect or negative effect. So the takeaway is, as, as your parents say, if you're going to say something, make sure it's say something positive about somebody and that will be, that will spread. But if you say something negative, it's that will spread and it's unfair and how people can do that and still do it to this day in golf and in life, particularly on a golf course and caddies here, everything. And it's just, you got to be cautious with information into how you talk about other people. And I, and then in college, I ended up driving 18 wheelers because he said the money was good in the summer and you'd fill in for the teamsters or on vacation. But we used to go to breakfast every morning, a place called Jerry's Diner in Worcester. And if the bill was $8, he'd leave 20 and $20. It was a lot of money in 1977, 78. He used to always, and my mother did too. Like when the waitress or waiter came over, he would always comment when she walked away of just look how hard she's working. You know, she, it's seven in the morning, pretty good. There's a chance her kids are at home and she had to get up. She had to be at five and she's working so damn hard. You got to talk to them. You got to look at them. You have to listen to them. You can't, it just can't be fake banter. You know, let them know how much you appreciate what you're doing and then tip them, right? They're there to make a living and it's their lives are so much harder than what we have right now. And it was a daily thing of what my parents did. No matter where we were, they had us make sure we saw the people that were waiting on us. They're working really hard. They have very genuine lives. They may want to be there. They may not want to be there. And we're extremely fortunate to have them help our day get better today. And making sure we saw the people around us. And that was did the guy driving by us that we cared for, did he even see us? And, and so it's an awareness thing of people. And that, that hurt me and helped me in work because I, right or wrongly, became that guy who, if I was ready to go home and had to catch the train because I had to get home for the birthday party or the birthday dinner for my daughter, if someone stuck their head in the office and said, you have five minutes for me, I'd say, absolutely, sit down. And no, there's no such thing as five minutes. It's usually 30 minutes, 60 minutes, because they want to talk about themselves or they had questions about their career or they had a struggle at home. No matter what it was, you had to be accessible. That, be, that, be, that helped me quite a bit to, to be 100% accessible. But the risk was, you know, I didn't, get, I didn't get on the train. And I should have gotten on the train. But I had an obligation to those people that I was responsible for managing that something was on that person's mind and they want to talk about it. And they worked their eight, eight to 10 hours already. And there was the only window to have the chat. And that was the promise I made to myself and to them when I was made their manager, I was going to follow through on that. That became sort of a hallmark of if the phone rings, I'd pick it up. I wouldn't have it go to voicemail. I'd be like, Mary's calling. And so when she, when I answered the phone, I want her to be surprised saying, oh, I, I thought I was going to get voicemail. I had no idea you were going to pick up. I go, well, why wouldn't I? I saw your name on it. You were calling me. 
And so I was the person that never had an administrative assistant. I never would have one. I wanted to not have it go to someone. If they were calling me, I wanted them to feel like they could call me and get me and I would pick up the phone. But again, the flip side is instead of it being a 12-hour day, it was a 16-hour day. And you know, there's a downside to that on the personal side. And so that's the balance that you tried to calibrate to where you think it should be, but you can go a little bit too far at times. And then sometimes you try to get back to the center line. I mean, that's a refreshing amount of humility. So you get to Providence College. Did you go to Providence to play basketball? No, I went, I went there. My dad went there. He played basketball there. It's the only school I knew existed, right? I went to the basketball camps. I did all that. And I was just one of those kids. I went to every home game. Like uh, my father and I went, that was it. I was going to Providence College. My mom grew up right across from the front gates of Providence College on Smith Street. All her cousins and uncles were there. And so it was just, it's the only college I knew. And I know that uh, the basketball team had a huge impact, right? You still have Ernie D's number 15 on your golf balls, right? Right. So I was an Ernie D guy. I, uh, I followed him my whole life. He was the heavy kid from North Providence, the heavy Italian kid who ended up being a, an icon and exceeded all expectations, what he did for himself, but he outworked everybody. He, skill-wise, he didn't belong anywhere, but he literally was on the courts outside 15 hours a day and, and, and did it. And I was in awe of that work ethic. And then when I met him at the camps when I was in junior high school, it drove me to work hard on everything I did, knowing his story. And 15 became sort of everything I do. I went and Dave Gavitt was the coach. And he's a, he was a pretty famous guy at the time. And I'm going to go and I said, I'm going to try and uh, I'm going to try out. You know, back, they took a few walk-ons. They had a, they had a, a, a JV team where they let five, five walk-ons. Then usually the two to three freshman scholarship players played on the JVs. They could play varsity, but they always played JVs. And there'd be eight or nine of us on that team. And a couple of guys would dress for the varsity. And I remember I made the cut and I made the team. And for me, I, that my expectations of anything other than just being on the team was zero. Because I had, in my eyes, made it. I had exceeded all those expectations. And Ernie graduated in 74. And back then, they didn't get uniform, new uniforms every two days. And when we walked in, like a week before the first game, they had the uniforms in the locker room. And you get to choose. Junior varsity got the leftover varsity shirts from, you know, a few years earlier. And there was Ernie's jersey. He wore in the Final Four. And it was sitting right there on the table. And I basically pushed everyone to the floor and said, that's mine. And I've had that and I have it in a frame. because it is the. It was just the anchor, right? The shirt, the number, sort of the beacon to just not give up and prove to myself that I won't ever be as hardworking he as he was. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it everything I have. That 15 reminds me of the sweat that goes into actually making the person proud who signing a check. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Is I wanna, I wanna make that person proud to have hired me to look at my check every week and say, to pause and go, I'm not sure I'm paying this person enough. You know, just make them pause and go, I'm, I'm really glad I hired him. I took a chance and I want to use him as an example. That's great. That's a really cool story. And I see the parallels of, like you said, the hard work, 
And I mean, it sounds like 15 was an impressionable age, impressionable number of everything for you, right? So that's, it's cool to have a nexus of that uh, manifest itself in somebody else that you can strive to be like. Uh, so cascading forward, right? You finish your Providence, you go work um, in the field for a few years and then end up at Wellington. Talk about your journey uh, to getting to Wellington and then your impact there. So uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not sure I'm a life's a zero sum game kind of person, but I, I've learned to believe that through the markets, that it is, everything is a zero sum game and there's terrible randomness to life and positive randomness to life, but it is terribly random. And I, when I went to Providence, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And we used to go to orientation in the summer and they'd have all the tables set up with finance, pre-med, nursing, and, and you had to pick up your, pick your major. And I remember saying, I need to get a major or I'm going to get a job. And someone said, go to the accounting table. So I went to the accounting table, took accounting. Now I got a job. So it all paid off where the plan, my only plan in my life was to get a job in accounting, did that. I went to work for Lloyd's of London in the forensic arson unit. And I'd be sent to these little towns to go out and reconstruct people's balance sheets personally or professionally to prove that they have probable cause to burn their buildings or their houses to put a claim in. In 99% of the cases, it was really arson. And I was astonished with how many people in America and around the world burned things down to put a claim in. But it was really not that there were bad people, but it was an act of desperation. That in all those cases, they, their lives were financially going down. And their last hope was to burn their house or their company. And they weren't criminals. I'd say 99% of them weren't. But the despair that they were experiencing in their life was terrible. And that was the last resort. And that, again, had a double mark on me that there's a huge criminal side to this country. There was an empathetic reason why they felt they had to do it. And it was difficult. It was a hard job to deny a claim, even though they did it. So I did that for about a year and a half. And I was on the road by myself, and I, I really didn't enjoy it. So I went, I was still living in Providence with my roommates. And I went back and I took the last ad on the last page of the Providence Journal, and it said, accounts receivable clerk. And there's a telephone number. And I still had to pay my rent and come up with some beer money. So I called the number. Guy answered and he said, can you come in today? I drove to Attleboro, Mass, to this massive brick building, no windows. And it was a manufacturing company. They made semi-finished product out of gold and silver. They were looking for someone to chase down receivables. It was $12,000 a year. I took the job. One thing led to another where they had 2 million ounces of gold in their inventory because back then gold was fixed at $35 an ounce from the Bretton Woods Agreement and foreign exchange rates didn't fluctuate. And just prior to that, they had dissolved that agreement and gold and foreign exchange rates fluctuated. So we had a company where its inventory never moved in price to one that in, during the hyperinflation of 82 went to $880 an ounce. So this massive volatility in their business. And they hired a guy from the grain markets in Chicago to use options and futures to hedge their inventory and volatility. After, and then after about six months, I went in and said, look, what you're doing is more interesting than what I'm doing. If I can help in any way, let me know. And he brought me in as a statistician to track his trades. But he taught me along the way how to trade futures and options and make markets in gold and silver. So over the next four years, that's what I did. I was, I was a gold trader. This fellow had left the firm. And when I was 26, 
I was the head trader for this firm. We're the largest market makers of gold for options in, the, in North America. Oh and God. I had a super cool <laughs> job sitting in a vault, a gold vault under Route 95, largest unsecured vault in the United States. And I was making markets all over the world in, in options for gold. I landed in this thing because Jack Frazier gave me the opportunity. You know, he's not just, he could have said no, but he said yes. But then he taught me something, right? He took the time to teach me a really cool skill. Now, this is where the I loved numbers, but I wasn't good at math came into a play with options. So I f- fell into something that I had an instant passion for that I found I was okay at. And I got a call in mid-87 from Aetna. And Aetna, big insurance company in Hartford, and all the money in the country was, was in Hartford at that point, and the general accounts for insurance companies. And they said, we're looking for a head of trading, stock trading. And I said, I, I couldn't tell you what city the New York Stock Exchange is in. Why did you call me? He said, because we believe the derivative markets are coming at an accelerating rate to the equity markets. I get a lot of guys who can trade IBM, but I have no one that can trade futures and options. And we need to have that skill. And we sent a uh, survey to Wall Street on what we're looking for. And your name came back on eight out of 10 of them. So this one guy who was a chief investment officer said, you know what? Take a risk on me. I'll take a risk on you. So I moved to Hartford in 87 and ran that trading desk and ran the portfolio insurance book for them, the dynamic hedging book for them. That all went incredibly well because the scale I was at exploded going to Aetna. And I got exposed to now the equity and fixed income side of the world. I made an okay name there. And now there were 600 people in the investment division. And this one person, the CIO, said, I, I'm leaving. I'm going to restart the equity division of an old blue blood firm in Boston called Stanishare and Wood. You want to go up and co-run it with me, and we can go do that. So he and I left in 1991 and went to Boston and rebuilt an equity division. He, of all the people that he could have taken, he took me because he, he remembered me saying and him saying, you're not the perfect fit. I had every top trader in the world wanted this job. He thought out of the box and took a risk on me. And I had a, what I thought was a great job. And I left that job. And we both ended up doing something that, from a risk standpoint, paid off. And he said, let's go up there and try and recreate this again. I did that for 10 years with him. And then in Wellington called me in 1999, asked me to come run trading and a few other things. And the scale again, goes up 30x from that. It just ends up being this randomness because the guy who hired me at Wellington said, Stannis was a smaller firm. We had every top trader in the world wanting this job. But Gene Trombley took a risk on me because he, he, took, he had me at his house for four hours in Wayland, Mass., and he took the time to ask the questions you asked about, tell me about your path, tell me about who you are, and sort of the ups and downs, your risks you took, your family, your DNA. And he walked away from that saying, I'm going to make a bet on him. He's an outlier to take the Wellington job, but there's something about his path of the breaks he got, the family values that was taught him, the knocks he took along the way. And I guess his ability to get back up. The guy at Aetna taken a chance, and they, and he he made him proud to have taken that chance. And Gene Trombley hired me at Wellington. I never sat down and aspired to look for another job. I never had an MBA. None of it was on a whiteboard. It all came back 
because you have to think about this stuff when you retire because you get asked on, you know, how did you end up in a job like that? And how did you end up having so much passion for what you did? It, it was being accessible, right? And that, and people walked out of the office, I think, and said, you know, Mark's always accessible. He gave me really straight advice and he was very honest in his feedback and he was always looking to get feedback and he took it and just didn't take it defensively. We think he always did the right thing. So kind of living near the center line helps and not cutting corners and making the person proud who signed your check. And then they tell people that, you know, when someone goes, who hired Tim? You know, he, Tim said, who hired him? You want the person to raise their hand and say, hey, I, I hired that guy. There's a lot of pride that goes into you want to show up and you want to do the right thing and you want to make them proud. It's no different how, how you want your parents to think about you or your, your spouse or your kids. And that really ports over to work. And a lot of that starts with golf, right? You sat on the wall and you wanted David Burke to be proud to say to Marty, the caddy master, I don't want the 19-year-old kid. I want Mark or Bobby Flaherty to be on the bag because for some reason, the kid never lost a ball. Most of the stuff that matters, you learn on the golf course. I was actually, one of the things I've written down was you don't have an MBA, which has got to be very atypical of the, at least the boards you're on now. But that's exactly what I was thinking when you're describing that is, you know, it doesn't sound like golf was, you weren't golfing along the way and getting those connections. You were working hard, but that foundation started when you were 10 years old, showing up every day, not uh, providing good experience, being accessible, but then it's ironic it came down to a four-hour conversation with someone. It wasn't on a golf course, but same principle of, hey, I worked hard, I showed up, and someone wanted to take a flyer on me. And I, in a four-hour conversation, it you know came to fruition. So it's interesting to see that parallel of, you know, again, when you look at it on paper, you're like, yeah, this is just like, you know, growing up on a golf course. It's the same type of principle. That's very, very cool. And in that vein, like you weren't golfing along the way, right? You you weren't out on the course making connections it was more i mean you're literally in a vault for some period of time but it, being on the golf course with with others wasn't really a driving factor of this right but it, i i did again i didn't play in high school and college because i played you're doing other sports but once i started working i started playing golf again i would play with the guys from the factory in a men's league in Attleboro, mass like i i didn't play with the other i i would make sure i'd play with the you know the security guards at the company and so you you continue to make those connections after work and on the weekends. And that picked up and accelerated once I started working. So golf re-entered my life. All the reasons I wanted to from a relationship building, just uh, meet more people and just be that person. And no matter what rank you rose to, you would always make the effort to pick a game with people that would say, I can't believe that guy called me to play. Right? Why do you call me? It's like, well, what do you mean? I'm not that guy, and you're not the guy you think you are. We're the same guy, we're the same gal. I mean, you know, don't ever be impressed with or intimidated by anybody. It's just no one's better or worse than anybody. So it's that's what golf does. It sort of normalizes the four people walking. There's not no there's no pecking order of who's better. I love that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's again very refreshing to hear. So let's transition, right? Um, uh, you're at Wellington. Uh, you start '99. You said you you arrived there. You're working way up the vice chairman. I imagine it's the same principles you've been talking about that got you into that position. What, what did you learn coming out of that? You know, what what was most impactful that you carry on to to today? 
I, I had, uh, again, I always think about the people that brought me in, took the time when I got there and then got out of the way. So the concept of getting out of the way was an incredibly valuable lesson for me that all along the way, people got out of the way. The, the fellow at the, the goal firm, Jack Frazier, he got out of the way for me. He gave me the chance and got out of the way. I went to Standish, Aaron Wood in Boston. Ralph Tate was the person from Etna I went with. He taught me a ton, empowered me, and, and got out of the way. And then I went to Wellington, Gene Trombley, who I sat down with. He was hell-bent on mentoring me, bringing me every week, gut-checking, giving me feedback that, you know, there would be times they'd be like, oh, my gosh, how much feedback can I get? He was just molding me and molding me and molding me. And to the point was, he's trying to teach me the lesson of you are you're responsible for everyone behind you. They have families. They want to do better. They need to get better. And to show them path how to get better. And all along the way, he was doing that to me. And then he got out of the way. They carve up his job. I get pieces of it. It's when I was 52, I decided I needed to leave. Not like I wanted to, but, you know, there are a lot of moons crossing. And my, you know, my parents were not doing well. And I was one of four, so I felt I, I could take more time to help. I had a difficult balance in life with I actually worked probably too many hours. And as much as I thought I was at home when I was at home, I probably wasn't as present as I should have been. And so my kids were of the age where maybe I could grab a few years with them before they, they go off and do their thing in college. So I wanted to make up time there. You've been to enough funerals at your life. So you're like, you know, the, the mortality thing kicks in. But the biggest thing to me was I had hired five to seven people that were doing things and getting better at it. And if I get out of the way, my stuff would get carved up, reallocated to them, and they would get to do what I was allowed to do. And that was the tipping point for me where I felt an incredible responsibility to do what for them, what others had done for me. And I had, I loved my job and I loved going to work. I loved every day. They did the right thing. And I felt that responsibility. And it wasn't really a, what are you going to do now when you're 53? None of that entered my mind versus, no, I'm going to help my parents. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. I'm going to take great joy in the people behind me doing well. And matter of fact, I got a note from one of them today. This morning, he was named Vice Chair Wellington. And I sit back and I, you know, I was in the kitchen. I had a huge smile on my face. I'm like, this guy worked in the back office when I found him. He made his way to vice chairman of Wellington. No MBA. It, it was like, you know, like watching, I guess, a, a child go to the Olympics and winning a gold medal. It, it's, it's You sit there and you remember the, the car rides and the Saturday mornings and the sweater. Your folks watching you hit balls when you were 12 and watching a, you win a tournament. It's, it's, you sit back, you look up at the sky and you're like, isn't that fantastic? I mean, isn't, wasn't it all worth it? And it is. That's a cool story. That I mean, I imagine that has to be one of the, the highlights of working at Wellington. It's not your own success. It's others. 100%. This morning was a top five moment for me in my life, in all honesty, when I got the news. Well, thank you for spending the time with me after that. <laughs> so uh, there's been a whole foundation of doing the right thing, showing up every day, being accessible, use your word. I, it just, you know, randomness, like you said, and uh, seeing the opportunity and going for it. Uh, I mean, that's what I'm taking out of the conversation most is, hey, it, not only do you have to have luck go your way, but it, it seems that helping others breeds success. 
in some fashion, right? And you had the opportunity, the fortunate opportunity for others to mentor you and get out of the way. And then you've done that in perpetuity for others. The, the, the flip side of that, because that all sounds rosy, but it's a personal decision where you want to find a balance in life. If I had to take a shot at myself, you know, I'm not sure I got that right. I don't regret or I wouldn't do it differently, but there is a flip side to all that and to not lose sight of it. That as you're going down that path with your own life, you're working so hard, but there's a very important variable going on over here if you have kids or a spouse or significant other. And to not forget that because you can lose sight of that. So that's the, that's the, it can be a positive flip side or it can be a negative flip side, but people, I think, need to gut check themselves, you know, once a month, once a quarter on ask themselves, you know, where they want the balance to be versus not having asked that question. And then it's too late and you can't get the balance back and there's, it wasn't worth it. And so that's, that's the other lesson you need to learn along the path. You've Lee Wellington, you have this amazing wake of success that with others that is still being carried on to today, like literally today. And first you get involved with the Goldman Sachs board in 24, late 2014, which you've been on since uh, in the risk and audit and governance type of role. But then more recently with the PGA Tour Policy Board, um, just on in a wide scope, can you talk about what it is to be in a role on a board? So I hadn't, I had, for obvious reasons, I had no experience on a public board because you couldn't at Wellington. Gary Cohn, who was the president and CEO of, of Goldman, had talked about would I be interested in being on the board? And I said, of course I would. I don't know what that means, how it works. That took a few years to sort of get through. I had a three-year non-compete and Wellington waived the third year. And by then, knowing what I know about the process, I'm surprised that I was still able to be a candidate by then, that they hadn't moved on, because now I'm behind a curtain. I see how the, the vetting of board candidates works, and, and there's so many qualified people that you can just find another great person. But again, in this randomness of life, I try to reflect on why me, how to get there, because normally, these are very high-powered CEOs, very accomplished resumes. They've done amazing things that um, become candidates for these boards. Because I see that now that, you know, why me at the time? And I had had really good relationship client experience. Our top 100 clients are not unlike the top 100 clients at Goldman. So there was an overlap there. I came from the securities division background, so which was a high piece of the revenue. So having someone there that had direct input on understanding and challenging what was going on inside, I'd had a risk management background. So I had these, this weird client market structure, securities division background fit that a CEO of a big company maybe wouldn't have. That was probably a one in a trillion. And that doesn't mean I don't belong. That doesn't mean I'm not an additive. But the process is a complicated gauntlet to sort of hit to find a candidate and then get that candidate. And, and, and my moons were all crossing. Very, very fortunate to have landed on that board because I'm not, and not in a biased way, but it is extremely complicated. It's global. There's four articles a day in the paper in the Wall Street Journal about them. So there's a lot going on. It's, so it's just a fascinating business model with a fantastic history. 
The future looks great for the industry because it's changing for everyone in that space. And having a front row seat to that for me is, is fascinating. And the people on the board are highly accomplished, they're exceptionally bright, they're collaborative. And so it's energizing. I mean, I get I get so excited about being there. I feel I do. I feel very proud to be on that board. Now let's flip to something that's totally uncorrelated. The PGA, which happened, I went on a year ago. I had uh, met Jay Monahan through a random contact with Sam Kennedy, who now the CEO president of the Red Sox when I lived in Wellesley, Mass. And Sam and I became friends. I'm, I'm a little older than Sam. In a weird way, I'd end up being a friend mentor to Sam as he made his way from a marketing guy at the Red Sox when John Henry bought the team to making his way up to president and CEO. So my example this morning of my friend at Wellington became vice chair, Sam had a similar path. And I'm one of you know a lot of people that not only became very close friends with Sam, but I, you know, through a lot of discussions, he would come to me and ask for advice on, I'm about to send this memo. Could you take a look? I'm about to give this speech. Could you edit it? I'm about to do this. Can you give me advice? Through that, we became friends. And one of his close friends from Trinity College was Jay Monahan. And Jay was making his way through the golf world by being Brad Faxon's agent in IMG to Seth Watt, giving him uh, an opportunity to be the executive director of the Deutsche Bank when it came to Boston. Jay and I became friends. And I played a little bit of that same role with Jay, but he he was very good at bringing a lot of people in to get help looking for advice and counsel as he grew his career. And then, like Sam, Jay makes his way and he becomes commissioner of the PGA Tour. We still talked along the way and and then I had the opportunity 18 months ago where he said, would you consider being on the policy board of the tour? And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? I mean, this, is, this would be a real honor to be on this board. I mean, I love the game. What a seat to have, a front row seat for something that we watch on TV every week. Now you get the, the badge on your neck that says, you know, inside ropes. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a fun experience, but it, it's also a very complicated growing business. That's even more global. And I think you'll see more consolidation and cohesion in the sport going forward. It's, and he's a great leader. And he, 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 no one can collaborate better than him from the caddy yard to the CEOs across the globe that he spends as much time with. He's in the locker room with the players. And he follows that same playbook of, I'm not sure he cares who you are. But he knows you're a human being who is working hard and has a family and trying to do the right thing. And he listens and he'll spend as much time with you and he'll help you. It's a very simple thing to do. It's walking in every morning when you say hello, but say, hello, Corey. If you end it with their, saying their name, they call their parents and say the commissioner just walked through and knew my name. It's so simple that most people don't do it because if they all did it, I wouldn't have had a chance. The two totally different boards, so I love how they're uncorrelated, but I my passion for each of them is as high. I love them both. I can't believe I'm on them, in all honesty. I take great pride in telling people when they, you know, or talking about it when I, I get asked, because nobody has tenure on anything in life. So it could end tomorrow, but I it'd be okay because at some point I have to get out of the way and let someone else experience that. So I got friends of mine that would probably rather me go down the path of, hey, what do you think about Bitcoin, the gold and silver market now? But we're not going to do that. Um, let's go more into 
where the future of this game is headed, right? So you talk about, you know, Jay being very forward thinking. Um, to my understanding, there's a partnership now with the European tour. There's obviously developmental tours uh, in Latino America, in Canada, tons of things going on just in the professional golf world. As you're thinking out, there are things on the horizon like betting in sports becoming very prevalent. And just in general, like the, the game being more accessible, to use your word, for everybody to play has never been more popular, in my opinion, with social media and what's just been swelling because of COVID. There's, you know, it's really the only thing you can do outside with friends. How is the board thinking about topics like that? I mean, gambling is, to me, very exciting. It, it's something that, um, I mean, it's been around since the beginning of man. But when I think about golf relative to other sports, in a perfect world, if you look forward, when the technology allows every shot for every player, what I do with my three high school friends on a Saturday where, you know, Murph's in the bunker and you're like, you know, two bucks, you don't get up and down, you know, and now if I can sit at home and Ricky's in the bunker and I can bet, you know, it shows the odds of Ricky getting up and down. I mean, there's so many bets that you can relate to in golf of hitting the fairway, making the cut, my score versus your score that they're just they're, They seem like more instant fun bets that resonate with golfers or other people that, you know, and I know there's more interesting combination bets you can do, but if you can now do all that for the corn ferry, you can do it for the European tour, maybe LPGA, you can, the combination of bets and you get to follow your favorite player. And, you know, there's, it's emotionally, I want, and I want them to do better. So I, I bet them. It's so different. I love that horse and I bet them. So they're emotional bets. They're statistical, better bets that the opportunity set for growth and revenues um, I, to me, is vertical because the combinations of 156 people a week hitting on average 71 shots, and you just think of the velocity of trading around that, just for the PGA before you get to the other tours, it's it's pretty exciting. And the demand is there for it. And early days would show that uh, it's going to grow at a, at, a, at a very rapid rate. So that's kind of cool how that'll play out and how they present that on the media broadcast. You're seeing a, a sort of a taste of it early on, or whether you do it on a streaming service, but there's going to be multiple channels to access it. And it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun, but it's also an exciting source of revenues going forward and done the right way, right? So you want to do it with the rules and you want to protect the players and you want to make sure that um, no one goes off the center line on this stuff because you don't want us, you know, a, a person in their backswing who has a bet, you know, someone in the crowd yells something and it can alter the outcome of the statistics of whatever that bet was going to be. So you got to, there's a lot of things that we'll learn along the way, but we'll learn them and we'll make it better. Inverting it, right. Of, Hey, what's the tour looking at over the next 10 years? What is the tour uh, in your opinion? trying to avoid doing in the next 10 years, right? Rather than say, oh, here's all the possibility. It's like, well, we know what doesn't work. What are some things that the tour would, you know, avoid going down the path of? That's a good question. There's so many governing bodies when you think about, and it's confusing. So people hear about PGA, is it PGA America or is it PGA Tour, the RNA, the USGA. And it's conceivable that 10 years looking back that there's maybe some consolidation with regard to the governing bodies of, you know, someone owns the Ryder Cup, somebody owns the President's Cup. But the, my own opinion is 
how do you keep the, the best talent at the PGA Tour? So disruption can disrupt any industry. And how do we make sure that we have a platform with the best players in the world will still want to be a part of the PGA Tour? And how do you make sure the title sponsors feel that they are getting a product that they underpaid for? Like the, the product delivered so much value for them, their clients, their brand, that they walk away looking to renew their contract or pay more. How do you get opportunities for people to have a path for the tour? It's not just corn ferry. How do you get more people playing the game? How do you grow the game? The PJ of America has, you know, a uh, grow the game process. The PJ Tour has the first tee. They're going, you know, on same paths, but not together. I think you'll see it all come together slowly, but it'll happen both on the ruling side, the path to the tour, diversity. How do we get more people involved? How do you get kids out to stay in college longer, but reward them with spots on the corn ferry tour? I mean, how do you do all that to grow the game, to grow the inclusion of the game, to grow the ladies game, to grow it globally, to incent the players to, to play as much as they do versus can the purses get so big that, the big per- people only play four events or do they still going to play 23 events? And, and it's, it's sort of a balance of growing it, consolidating it, making it less confusing. The rules to me is still so complicated. You know, people still don't know the difference between a red stake and a yellow stake. I'm not sure I do. So it, it's just make it easier and grow it, but keep the talent in your tour because you can't be complacent and you got to stay hungry and you don't want to be disrupted. So you want to be the best platform that has the best incentive system that makes its vendors feel like they are doing the right thing and, and getting great value. The media package and the presentation of the product is first class. And if you're, you're going to have even more choices digitally going forward that can confuse you at home, how do we get you to watch us? How do we get you to go to an event? And I think that to your point, I think that's happening. I think Jay is doing that. I think people are coming to the game and watching the game. The ratings are great. The, the betting handles are growing. Um, we'll get people back. The, the quality of the play is great. The, the tour members are great. They're accessible. Kids love them. I mean, everything about them is it's exciting. I mean, I, I, I watch it. I love it. And I, I, it's not being a part of the board, but I just think it's a better product. It's really, it's the leadership under Jay is outstanding, is collaboration with all the other governing bodies across the globe. It's coming together and stronger than ever. So I think the game is in fantastic shape. Thanks for sharing your history and views on the tour's future, Mark. I'm equally as excited about the institutionalized betting environment in golf and how that could bring a more diverse viewership to the game. And if you ask me, I think Ernie D would say you worked as hard as him to get to where you are today. All right. In our next episode, I talked to someone who, as a college golf coach, took his program from the NAIA League to NCAA Division I in seven years. After retiring as a coach, this person created a market for helping junior golfers navigate the college selection and recruiting process and has maintained himself as the premier leader in that space. See you soon.